Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today in the show, we talk about our next connecting practice, which is meeting needs. We're going to talk today about how to meet emotional needs, how to meet physical needs, and how to meet the sensory processing needs that our kids present. And obviously, if you are new to this conversation, um, these are all uh, specific ways that uh, particularly kids who have experienced early childhood trauma um, are going to be affected and and need our support as parents or or caregivers. And so um, we brought on three different professionals to talk about that today. And so uh, as as some of you know, if you've been paying attention or or listening to this show for a while, Empowered to Connect, we are headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, in our, our building is a um, partner organization of ours, which is the Memphis Family Connection Center. And so um, our three professionals today are uh, those who, who work at the Memphis Family Connection Center. So you'll hear them reference MFCC, and that's what that is. Um, but they have come on with us today to discuss um, how to meet those different needs. And so we brought uh, Luz Wolf, who is an incredible occupational therapist. Um, Annie Cornell does speech pathology. And uh, Stella Austin and I, who has been on with us before, um, who is a licensed professional counselor. And so all three of them are going to come and talk about their particular area of expertise. And you'll hear throughout the course of the episode um, how each of these different areas um, interweaves with the others. And so um, if you uh, have not explored this world before, um, this is a really, really great foundational podcast to get started with because we're going to talk about the overview, but also some very practical ways um, to meet each need and the importance for ourselves as parents and caregivers to meet those needs as well. So definitely tune in, grab a notebook, take some notes, uh, and enjoy this conversation with our three different therapists as well as Becca and I now on the Empowered to Connect podcast. Well, all right, as we mentioned earlier today, we've got Annie Cornell, we have Luz Wolf, we have Becca McKay, and we have Stella Sinanai. And we are going to talk uh, about our next connecting practice, which is um, meeting needs. Now, it's broken down into several different categories, which is why we have um, all of our wonderful guests here today. And so um, I'll kind of start by introducing everyone, and then we can break down into the actual um, discussion today. And so, Annie... You're a speech therapist, correct? I am. <laughs> and do you want to share about um, your practice and who you generally work with? Uh, currently, I work with children ages birth to 21, uh, early intervention, outpatient speech in the home and um, schools. But also here at MFCC, I see kids in the center. Awesome. All right. And then Luz is an occupational therapist. Um, and I'll say, obviously, we um, have known Luz for a very long time personally, but we, we love her and she's incredible. And so, Luz, you do occupational therapy. And do you want to share a little about yourself? Yes. Uh, I have been an OT for 31 years now in pediatrics. And currently, I work at MFCC. Among other facilities, I work in a clinic-based business as well. And I provide uh, coaching services in private practice. And your Memphis accent is very, very prevalent, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Luz is originally from Columbia, uh, and we are so happy to have her here. Stella, uh, you've been on before, but do you want to just share a little about what you do professionally here? Yeah. Um, so I love the international aspect of today's recording, by the way. We have Luz from Colombia. I'm from Albania. And then the rest of us from Memphis, I guess. So fun. Um, I work with children, teenagers, and adults at uh, MFCC. Um, and I provide counseling support uh, for parents as well. Um, so it's, it's a fun job and I love it a lot. Awesome. And Becca, who all of you know from hearing her all the time. And Becca, Stella, I will have you know, grew up in Russia. So in your oh, face, okay. we're not all from Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> not all Americans are from the same place, Stella. I don't know if you know that that's, or not. That's right. And my stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So why don't we get into our discussion today? Um, we're going to talk about meeting needs. And, and Becca, I mean, we've you obviously wrote this module, and so I'll let you introduce it. But um, this is generally one of the things that when you begin, um, at least I'll say personally, when I started into the ETC parenting curriculum, this was this was an eye-opener for me because I did not um, understand with enough importance these 
dynamics. And so why don't you talk through our connecting practice for today and then we'll start talking about it. Absolutely. So if you have listened to us for any length of time, you know that we always, always talk about the importance of attachment Um, and meeting needs is an indispensable part of the attachment cycle. So when we can meet needs um, and not just kind of the needs that you might think of, but the whole child's needs, things like, man, relational, academic, spiritual, environmental, emotional, physical, sensory processing, when we can think about all of those kinds of needs throughout different developmental ages and stages, we can actually create patterns in our relationship with our kids that say, your voice matters. I'm here to help you meet those needs you're safe with me. So it's really, really like a critical, we we joke that we say this every time, this is our most important connecting practice, which we say every (laughs) single week. Um, But this one really, truly, you cannot um, relate to kids in a connected attachment-based way without meeting their whole person needs. We focus in our model on three core components, which are to meet sensory processing needs, meet emotional needs and meet physical needs. So those are kind of, that's not all the kinds of needs that you can have, but those are kind of the ones that we highlight and that we focus on. Awesome. Why don't, I mean, I guess it doesn't really, uh, also you might hear traffic every now and then, sorry for that. Um, There is, uh, there's not one that's more important than the other in this, but I guess if we're thinking um, about kind of outside in, why don't we start with meeting physical needs? And so um, uh, Luz, I think in the, in the world of sensory processing and understanding the sensory systems and all of that, a lot of times this is one of the areas where we are the least educated as parents because we, we might understand what we understand personally, but we might not understand how different sensory systems affect kids and behavior. And so do you want to kind of start giving us kind of an overview of how to meet physical needs and, and what we need to understand there? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there is a very important sense, which is called interoceptive sense. And this interoceptive sense gives us the idea of how our body feels, our internal sensations. Are we hungry? Are we sleepy? Are we tired? Are we in pain? So understanding that my perception of how my body feels is different than the perception of the child is extremely important. And meeting those physiological needs is the foundation for everything else. It's the foundation of the house. Mm. So when it comes to sensory processing, first we need to attend to those physiological needs because they are the survival needs. Mm. Okay, yeah. um, breathing, heart rate, um, bowel movement, bladder movement. So if we are having challenges with sensory processing, we need to attend first to those body-based needs. And a lot of times we might see behaviors. And if you've listened to the podcast for a while, we, we will kind of reference having a, like a mental checklist to go through, oh, are they hungry? Are they thirsty or whatever? And I, I have oftentimes been met with you know, criticism or, or laughing from family members and saying, oh, yeah, it looks like what they need is a snack. Yeah. Because a lot of times we interpret bad behavior as this is just bad behavior. It needs to be punished and dealt with. So maybe let's talk about nutrition and and hydration first and how that can affect the brain and how that can affect our body and and cause those behaviors to present in a certain way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, When we we are kids, we don't have the wording for what we feel. Yeah, yeah. So we communicate through behaviors. Hmm. So as parents attending to our kids' co-regulation needs, we always need to be in a detective kind of role. Being always curious about it, not being too quickly saying, oh, no, he's hungry. Or because sometimes the child will tell you, I'm hungry. And actually the child is thirsty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So always wondering, keep that, that wondering attitude about what else could be there. Okay, that's very important. Man, I love that you just said, they might say I'm hungry and they're really thirsty. Because I think sometimes as adults, we can get so frustrated because you're like, the kid asked for a snack and I gave him a snack and they still weren't listening to me. And so it's like that interoception, that internal awareness might not be there. So as adults, we can step back and we can think about 
man, have they had enough food and water? Have they had enough movement? Have they had enough rest? Is their body regulated? So I just love that you mentioned that because I think sometimes, especially past the toddler years, I think everybody has a lot of compassion for toddlers who are hangry or tired. Oh, so-and-so's just sleepy. Like that's okay when they're toddlers. But as kids get older, sometimes we hold them to such a high standard and we don't give them the same kind of grace and the same kind of compassion and understanding. And we don't look at them with like, oh, buddy, you're sleepy. (laughs) Or, oh man, you need a a drink of water. And so I just love that you said that because I think it's so true. It's not about getting the kid to say the right thing. It's about stepping back and looking at the whole picture and trying to meet those needs as the adult. Yeah, and when we are doing this process, as adults, we have the tendency to ask too much to a child who has a high need and is dysregulated. Mm. Less is more for a child. So as an example, the child is dysregulated and then you start asking the child, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you in pain? The child will be saying, no, 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 no. Maybe he is. What about if you made just the resources available? Get a little drink, get a snack next to the child. For a child, just the presentation of the environment and actions will, will make it easier for the child to identify what the child needs and take an action upon that. I love that. That um, it reminds me of the kind of as we begin into this conversation, you start thinking about well, okay, well let's let's say that they just ate breakfast and they drank a whole bottle of water during breakfast, and they're we're still seeing these behaviors. But like right now, and I don't know if this is coming through in the podcast, but the 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 uh, yard crew for our building decided that right now under this window is the right time to run the blower, and so. Um, Let's say that, yeah, and maybe think about, you know, it's annoying me right now and I'm an adult, but like, let's say that you've got some kind of noises or something that are going on and it's beginning to bother a kid. And so maybe just a basic overview of kind of sensory processing, because sometimes we have sensory processing disorder as a diagnosis and it's very clear to parents. They know, okay, there's very serious needs here in these particular areas. Sometimes there might be minor sensory processing needs that wouldn't show up in a diagnosis, but we need to be aware of kind of how to watch out for those things. And so can you give us just a a sense of maybe how those things feel to kids who have heightened senses Mm -hmm. in those areas and and Mm -hmm. maybe why that might be a big deal for us to watch out for? Yeah, sensory processing is the capacity of the brain to filter what is relevant. For instance, right now, during our conversation, we are able to filter out the sound of the machinery out there. Okay, there are some um, sensory inputs in the environment that speak too loud to a child. So in our senses, we know we have our visual system, auditory system, our sense of touch, our sense of balance. And for each sensory system, we have hypersensitivities. Lights are too bright. Cars move too fast. People come to me moving too fast. It's too loud. Um, If I move fast, I can get sick with movement. I can get sick in car rides. So uh, when we have senses that are speaking to us too much, that brings a sense of unbalance. Mm. And that is going to show as behaviors. Yeah. Again, our children do not know how to communicate those things. Yeah. But also we have the other opposite side of sensory processing, which is the side where the children do not pick up enough information. Mm. So when a child doesn't pick up enough information, their brains start seeking And we need to make sure that a child who has seeking behaviors is not that necessarily because the child is sensitive. Yeah. The child is asking for more. Yeah. So a child who is seeking, for instance, movement. We have the kids that are bouncing all over the place (laughs) all day long. And we are wondering, when is he going to stop? Yeah. They cannot stop. You see the child tired exhausted, you try to stop the child and the child does not stop. And you see your child falling apart mm-hmm. during the day and you don't know what to do. Yeah. Because every time you try, you are rejected or things don't work. 
So we have a child who is sensory seeking, who doesn't know when to stop because his body sensation base, his interoceptive system is not speaking to the child enough like, hey, get to stop. You yeah. are tired. You're sleepy. Try to calm. Start finding calming strategies for your body. So sensory processing is not only about children who are very sensitive. Mm-hmm. They don't like to be touched. They don't like toothbrushing, nail trimming, hair cutting. There are the other side where the children do not respond enough. Yeah. Or their brain don't get enough. And then they get sensory seeking behaviors. Yeah. And also we have the children who just do not respond. The children who you have to tell them so many times to do something before they will start. Yes. The children who will avoid doing things because maybe the children, the child doesn't know exactly how to do it because he doesn't know how to move his body. Yeah. So when it comes to sensory processing, yes, we need to look at the environment. The child is having distress. Okay, let's look at the environment. Is it too bright? Is it too loud? What is going on in the environment that could be a trigger for that behavior so that we start having a trial, a, a trial time. Okay, let's take this child to a calmer environment where maybe there is not much light. Maybe it was too loud. Okay, let's, change. let's go to a different room. Yeah. I love that. I, I can have this conversation all day, Luz, and, and talk through all of these things. I want to keep us kind of on on track. And so, Annie, when we talk about um, meeting these physical needs, a lot of times there's also um, there's also just a, a component of this that you deal with like, as, a, as a speech therapist. And so why don't we kind of begin talking about that um, and maybe some of the things that as you're hearing Lou's talk and as you're thinking about these things that you, that came to mind for you. Um, I had several thoughts, actually. The first was we what Becca was saying, we have these high expectations of kids when I think whether there's sensory processing issues are present or not, kids just don't have a developed frontal lobe to be able to have the same impulse control as an adult. And so we're going to see different behaviors in a child versus a grown-up. And when I say adult, I'm talking 21 years plus. Uh, At the same time, when y'all were talking about, oh, the child might be saying they're hungry, but they're thirsty. In the past 24 hours, I've had so many people text me saying, what do you need? And I'm like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I need. Mm -hmm. And so if me as a grown woman in this overwhelmed state that I've been in, don't know, how can I expect a child that is having sensory issues um, be able to identify that for themselves. Yeah. And then you have the added component of a lot of the children that we see have language uh, delays. So not only may they not be able to identify it, even if they can, they may not have the words to then say, this is what is happening for me. And so that's where the speech component comes in is I have a lot of parents come and they're very concerned because because their child isn't speaking and they want to work on things that I think ideally, yes, I would love for my kid to be able to speak in complete sentences and, you know, have formulated thought, but that's just not the basis of language, kind of like what Luz was talking about with the house. The basis of language for me, and I try to explain this to parents, is that we want to communicate functional words. Mm -hmm. So that's where I start. I want them to be able to ask for help, to indicate pain, um, you know, uh, to be able to ask for more if they're hungry. Uh, So those really functional words, and once we have that in place and those needs are being met, we're able to expand to, you know, recalling events or telling a story, um, having a conversation, telling a joke. But we have to start with that basic fundamental need to have the child's needs met. So that's what I focus on in the speech therapy world. And even with older children, like Becca was discussing, you know, we do have this grace for toddlers that we don't have for older children. But like Luz was saying, if we have children with sensory processing or auditory processing, their language is just not as developed as it should be, or we would expect it to be at that age. 
So we want to be able to extend them the same grace as a toddler because they are learning too. And they're overcoming a lot to get to the point where they can then express what they need and what they're feeling and those types of things. I think too, we're kind of talking about meat physical needs and meat sensory processing needs at the same time, which if you've been listening to this series, you can't separate the core components from each other. They all work together so well. Um, And I think what I'm hearing from Luz and you, Annie, is also like when they communicate how they're feeling, even if you wouldn't feel the same way, that doesn't mean that's not how they're feeling. So Mm, we want them so badly to tell us when they're hurting. Well, then they get a splinter they are screaming to the top of their lungs and we're trying to tell them splinters don't hurt that bad. But to your point, Luz, maybe to them it does. Maybe it hurts that bad. So I think too, having, again, we talk about it all the time, but just being compassionate and having that understanding towards kids of like, okay, helping, I don't know, just helping us as adults to think about they may be feeling this differently than I would feel it in my, in their body they may be hearing this louder than I hear it in their ears. Like this light may feel very bright to them and it doesn't feel bright to me. So instead of dismissing them and being like, this doesn't hurt that bad. This is not too loud. You're fine. It's okay. Right. Not only do we want them to express themselves, but also we have to be willing to listen to what they're expressing. (laughs) Like even if we don't get it, even if it doesn't sound right to us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that is so true. And I, uh, gosh, the splinter thing just hit so close to homes. We just had that issue the other night where there was one of the splinters. That's a, it's a, you know, there are tough splinters to get out, and there's ones where you're like, that's not even really a splinter. It's just kind <laughs> of stuck to your finger. But there was one that was like half in, half out. It was like an inch and a half long. I mean, it was scary looking, but it was like if you'll just hold your finger still, I can get this thing out immediately. And it was like an hour long battle because it was like, no, I'm scared. I don't want you to touch it. Don't stop. So it, uh, we, we are definitely in that, in that realm, um, a lot at the house. So Annie, when you are, um, when we, when we talk about food issues specifically, like this is in, in our world of, of kids who have experienced early adversity, like food issues can be, you know, minor problems sometimes. Um, or major catastrophic huge issue, right? And so um, maybe why don't we talk through sort of an overview for how to approach food for parents. And and when it comes to thinking about meeting those needs, um, we might have to, as parents, unlearn some things that we've had as philosophies growing up, you know, as we approach this with our kids. Yeah, I think we, as a new generation, are starting to learn that a lot of the things that have been done in the past regarding food um, may not be the best decisions. Uh, We have a lot of children that are going to have grown up with food insecurity, whether it's related to poverty or um, situations like neglect. And so if they come in and are desperately seeking food, we need to have food available for them to have them have a felt sense of safety because that's what it boils down to is it doesn't feel safe when you're hungry. Yeah, It doesn't feel safe when you're hungry and you don't know if you can get food. So that, that insecurity and the fear that rises with something like that is going to result in a lot of other parts of our system being corrected. Yeah. 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 Um, So things that we can do is uh, have, easily accessible food that they don't have to ask. And you can, uh, I, at my house, have a snack drawer. So that way I can kind of pick and choose what they can have access to all day long. Mm -hmm. That way, you know, they're not eating fruit snacks a thousand times, Uh, but maybe peanut butter crackers, something with some protein, something with some carbohydrates, string cheese, something again with some protein. Um, And then another thing is you can even fill it for the day and say, you know, here's two apples and two packs of fruit snacks and some peanut butter crackers. Yeah. And then you have all of this that you can eat in between our meals that we're also getting so that that food insecurity can kind of release. So then then we can calm the other parts of the system that have been heightened from it. Um, Gone are the days of clearing your plate. Also, mm. you know, you must eat everything on your plate. And I think we're learning now that that really impacts hunger fullness cues. And kids innately can regulate that. We're the ones that mess it up for them. Mm. And so 
you, we, that's another thing, kind of Becca, what you were saying, we have to listen to what they're saying mm-hmm. because I am not experiencing what they're experiencing. Yeah. So if yeah. they've had, you know, three bites, I want to be like, that's not enough. You need more food. But I have to honor and trust them and hope that in the next mealtime or snack and they're hungry, they'll make up for the fact that they haven't eaten that much instead of saying you have to eat everything on your plate just because it's an arbitrary rule. So isn't it funny that like as an adult, whenever you're like trying to eat healthy, the first thing that most people tell you is like, you should eat every couple of hours. And it's like, we've been teaching kids from like toddlerhood to like yeah. eat your whole dinner. Don't eat a snack. You'll ruin your dinner. Right. And it's like, then whenever you become an adult and you're like, how can I like think about my food better? One of, oftentimes, one of the first things that pops up is right. like, eat every few hours, <laughs> eat smaller meals throughout the day. So it is kind of that like, it, yeah, it's, it's just thinking about our whole, the whole body, the whole person. I wonder too, um, I don't know in your speech therapy practice, but I know some speech therapists work with like food sensitivities. Is that something that you've seen in your practice too? Yes. So I lead a feeding group for food sensitivity, food aversion, food refusal. Uh, there, you know, for a lot of kids, it can be based on texture. Mm-hmm. Texture can be very off-putting for a child that has sensory processing needs, whereas Meats, meat is a big one that kids just don't, it's inconsistent. They're not really sure what it's going to taste like from one meat to the next, or even from one burger to the next. And so inconsistency in food, which is very common, especially with fruit. If you think about, if you get a tub of blueberries, one's going to be, you know, kind of crisp and one might be kind of mushy. And for kids, that can be very, very off-putting because they don't know what to expect. So they stick with the things they know, the crunchy, the carbohydrates, the Mm -hmm. things that are the same every single time. Mm -hmm. And so speech therapy and OT in conjunction, our our feeding group is led with OT as well, um, work to combat those Mm -hmm. uh, aversions to food to hopefully create a wider variety that kids are eating so that Mm -hmm. they can feel better in the day and we can have all the other parts of the body needs met. And if anybody's listening to this and they're like, okay, but that's not my kids. My kids, you know, they've always had plenty to eat all the time. Like, but they're sneaking food at night. Like this is, this is just them being bad, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I have, I don't, I have issue with the word bad. I don't like to describe kids as bad. I don't even really behavior as bad because it, creates this innate sense of worth Mm -hmm. that's not good. And I don't want your kids to hear people say that and then turn that internal. Mm -hmm. Um, So no, even if your child has always had access to food, always had a variety of options, has always eaten a variety of options, there can be so many other factors that can be contributing to food hoarding or sneaking food and things like that. And that goes back to, are the emotional needs being met? Is there something underlying that we need to address that's resulting in this behavior? Not that the behavior is bad and needs to be punished, but why is the behavior happening? Which is where we come to Stella. Yay, Stella. Um, Okay, so kind of, I mean, we did not even plan that transition, but that was perfect. So as Annie mentioned, you know, there's there's sometimes where, okay, we're going to do our checklist and we've got some physical needs met. We've got you know, hydration and nutrition stuff being taken care of. We know that they're, they're in kind of a, a regulated place physically, like they're not bounced off the walls or jittery or whatever. And then we're just figuring out there's just some emotional stuff going on. So when we're thinking about how to meet our kids' emotional needs, can you just give us sort of an overview of, of how we need to begin thinking about that? And then, um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, well, first of all, when Becca was mentioning earlier, like something happens to a kid and there is this overreaction and we don't agree with that because it doesn't seem like it's proportional. Um, in those moments, the first thing that we can do is reflecting their feelings and attuning to their emotions. Uh, that just because I don't, I would not react like that in that specific situation or circumstance. It doesn't mean that their emotions are not valid uh, or correct. Um, so when we dismiss feelings and reactions, that's when we are actually creating a gap in that connection uh, piece. Um, so reflecting feelings, attuning to their emotions, um, having an empathetic understanding uh, of whatever they experience, 
asking questions um, to help them reflect deeper in whatever they're feeling um, and creating a safe space for that to happen, for that vulnerability uh, to happen is like huge uh, in that connection piece. So I think that's like one of the first things that would do um, to connect further with a kid. I think too, Stella, when you're talking, I'm thinking, man, dismissing the feelings is not helpful and also getting so tangled up in the feelings is not helpful either. That's true. Yeah, we don't want to stay there forever. Yeah. On the pendulum, like, oh my goodness. Like, and so I think, you know, we can say kind of bluntly, you know, not all behaviors that come from feeling disappointed or angry or sad or scared are safe. They're not all helpful. Um, But I love that you said just like starting with reflecting back. And I think the key there is reflecting back what they're feeling. So not letting your own emotions come into play. Somebody told me years ago, and I've said it a bunch, like as an adult, tell yourself, I'm too tall to ride this roller coaster (laughs) and just be there and be supportive and empathetic without jumping on the roller coaster with them. So I wonder, um, you know, as you think about families that you've worked with, kids that you've walked with, what are some of those like light bulb moments that have happened as you think about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, that attunement piece is huge. While in therapy, um, you usually see kids and then we have some conversations with parents as well in ways that they can support their kids. Um, when parents are fully on board and when they are making time to connect with kids outside of that therapy space as well, um, there are moments when they just come back and talk with us and there is this reflection of like, oh yeah, I saw that. Like I saw how that can, um, affect my child. I saw how, um, that lack of structure or that, uh, over nurturing, um, has not been helpful for the kid or, um, this is how I might be contributing to those behaviors and those big feelings as well. Um, so when that awareness piece, um, comes in, I feel like that's like where I get excited and where I'm like, okay, great. Like this is where we can actually start doing some great things. Um, and it feels like it's a teamwork. Um, so when we have parents and kids fully on board, and working together, I feel like that's where um, everything changes. Um, Mm. And when that connection grows um, deeper as well. And Stella, when we're thinking about kind of proactive things, like so if we want to meet our kids' emotional needs, but we want to be proactive and and begin like maybe establishing some rhythms or some Mm. routines in our house that can be um, helpful frameworks for like building an emotionally healthy house. What, what do you think about with the, some of those kind of things? Yeah. Well, with the summer being here, I know that there has been a disruption in, in routines in general and things look differently. Lots of big transitions. Um, yes. Kids, when I ask them like how, how you're feeling about summer, there is this double dip feeling. This is how our therapist Jill calls it. Um, so they, they feel this excitement and they are looking forward to the summer. And then there is this sadness and uh, mm. for not being able to be with their friends, for not having the structure that sometimes or many times help children thrive um, and contain those big feelings as well. Wow. Um, so I would say that some important um, conversations that I've had with parents is how do we maintain some routine and rituals or even like create some new ones um, to increase that feeling of safety um, because we know that predictability and structure do make us feel safe. Uh, we know what to expect um, and we know how to navigate that. Um, so we've had conversations about um, some routines and rituals that we can keep in the same way, let's say like bedtime or mealtime so that the day is not all over the place. Um, there is a framework around which we can work and then create some new ways of transitioning to other activities like summer camps or um, therapy group, group therapy, which we're doing at MSCC this summer. Um, so many different things that will be, will look differently for the kids, especially this is like, the first summer, I would say, where things might look a little bit like closer to the normal after COVID. So those feelings are different and those transitions will look different as well. Um, so again, having those consistent routines um, that we can still keep the same from 
the school year and then implementing some new ways of um, being outdoors or um, going on a family walk that's consistent. Um, asking kids whenever they are going to attend summer camps or some therapy groups or whatever, like BBS, some big feelings might come. So like creating space to ask questions if they're feeling anxious, if um, they are feeling shy or overwhelmed. Um, so just like that connecting um, and, and supporting their transitions in the best way possible. Meanwhile, the big piece here is for the parent to remain regulated as well. If we are dysregulated and those transitions are impacting us big time, which is more than normal, um, then we will not be able to create space for their transitions to be smooth as well. So regulating our emotions um, and then co-regulating with the child as well. (laughs) Yeah. I don't like that last part, Stella. We don't... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so it, now I, I want us to kind of think collectively. So obviously there are things that um, Annie and Luz and Stella, y'all have all said that interact together. Are there thoughts that, that any of you have? And we'll just take turns because we're in the same room and, you know, it's easy to talk over each other. But like, um, are there things that you have heard from each other that you want to touch on or kind of talk about how they integrate with your specific area? So I was laughing when you said that, J.D., about not liking the last part because (laughs) I have done a lot of work on myself for that exact reason. Kind of like Becca was saying, um, I jump on the roller coaster because I get caught up in that. Um, I had a child recently, not my child, but I had a child tell me recently, I'm sorry I was mad. And I felt myself want to get on that roller coaster because it was one of those moments where I recognized that I was not allowed to be angry either as a child. Mm -hmm. And I just looked at him and I was like, I want you to hear me. It's okay that you're mad, Mm -hmm. but we have to channel that anger in a way that is not destructive. So yes, be mad. Uh, Anger is okay. It's a, it's a primary emotion and it just happens a lot, especially with children that are, aren't able to regulate yet. Um, but I don't know, and I don't know, it may be that he came to that place on his own or somebody had told him it wasn't okay to be mad. I'm not sure, but I wanted him to know it was okay. But I had to regulate myself first in the moment to get there because I was still caught off guard from the things that had resulted from the anger. And I wanted to jump on that roller coaster and up, down, up, down. And so (laughs) I laugh, Stella, because I think that that is huge part, a huge part of having an emotionally safe home Mm -hmm. is as a parent, being able to regulate yourself and step back and say, this is not about me. Mm -hmm. This is about them and what they are experiencing. And then how can I validate that, but then also channel it into something more positive Mm -hmm. so that it's a better experience for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, Amy, I love uh, I love that. I what I, I would say, Amy, I wanted to hit on Amy. Sorry, y'all. Um, so I would say something else in addition to that. Um, that modeling piece is huge. Like when you are modeling to them that as an adult, I can I can have big feelings, but this is how I regulate myself, and this is mm-hmm. how we will not, you know, go into that roller coaster. Like we're gonna actually identify it, normalize it, and then move on that modeling piece is huge because where will they learn all of this big ways of, of regulating their feelings? It's going to be from another safe adult that is willing to step into that vulnerability and also not stay there forever and kind of like transition out of it. So it's hard to like deal with those transitions with, with big feelings for sure. But I appreciate that. Stella, when you, when you talk to parents and you can tell there's a little bit of like maybe whether it's because a kid has shared stuff in a session or, um, or you're just picking up on it. Are there way, are there a few things that you give parents as recommendations for um, cooling themselves off or um, creating the space they need? Um, it, for those of us who have multiple kids, it can feel like, well, I can't regulate my, my emotions. There's people everywhere I look in my house. Like I can't find a space in my home where there is not a child or a, animal or something sitting there to keep me stressed out. So 
Are there any things that you suggest to parents that um, can be just kind of quicker, maybe makeshift in the moment, you know, regulation tools for themselves? Um, yeah. Often we recommend what we say, what we, um, the, the word is timing so that it's not necessarily a punishment. Like I don't want to be in your presence anymore because you're making me feel like this. That way we're not going into that self-worth um, part, which can be really damaging for the child and for the parent as well. Um, taking a step back, I know that if, you have, if your house is full of kids, like where do you actually find a safe, <laughs> calm place to take a deep breath? Can yeah. be a backyard, maybe you live in an apartment. Um, I don't know, get yourself out of the window or, or do something, not out of the window, but like your head. <laughs> don't do that, y'all. No, no, no. Um, so just like, just changing, shifting your environment, even if it's not like going, you probably want to go in Hawaii and have a vacation and be far away from everybody, but just like a small shift can change a lot. Um, so I would recommend something like that. And then what calms you? Can you put your headphones and listen to a calming song? Uh, we know the the power of, of music therapy and how that can calm our nervous system. Um, it can be, again, going to what we said earlier. Do you need to drink some water? Do you need to have your favorite snack? Do you need to call a friend and say, hey, I'm exhausted. How are you feeling? And maybe that's where that support will come as well. Mm -hmm. Another parent who is dealing uh, with uh, similar things. So they, they are normalizing your feelings and you're not feeling lonely in that experience either. Um, so just like those small shifts can, uh, can make a huge difference. Um, yeah. Luz. Yeah. I would like to add something and this is becoming very common and I love this Parents are becoming more and more aware about their own sensory processing difficulties. And usually those sensory processing difficulties are triggered by the child's communication during moments of struggle. Yeah. How many times we have like our buttons being pushed because the child is screaming. <sighs> and maybe it's not the screaming, maybe it's the volume and how your heart rate goes up in that moment, and you are trying to attend to your child's needs and you are neglecting yourself in that moment. Yeah. So when it comes to self-reflection, also think about how you feel the world from the sensory standpoint. Mm. Sounds, movement, what you see. Because any kind of sensory input that is going to bring you unbalance is something that you need to take care of in a very mindful way so you will be able to support your child keeping your own sensory regulation. Yeah. Are there things that, whether it's uh, breathing exercises or... Yes, a lot of breathing. Please, let's, let's be mindful about how we are breathing. In our society, we forgot how to breathe. Mm. Yeah, just think about this, how busy you get that you... Just don't breathe efficiently. So make sure you consciously breathe throughout of the day, not only in the moments of challenge. And is there truth to the fact that we need to take moments of, this is going to sound like I'm way down the weeds, but to take moments to make sure we're breathing like through our nose and out through our mouth and, all, and what, what, is, what does that do for our well, bodies? Well, first of all, it's going to increase the oxygen level in your brain. Okay, as your oxygen brain in your uh, oxygen level in your brain decreases, there are other chemicals that are released that trigger stress. <sighs> oxygen is the food, <laughs> exactly. Oxygen is the food for the brain. If yeah. you want to have a good chemical balance in your brain, you really need to keep a really good oxygen level in your brain. Otherwise, otherwise there are going to be other chemicals released that is going to increase your level of stress because the survival mode in the brain gets triggered. And how many times do you find yourself during the day where you kind of like have to stop everything and you have to take a deep breath? Yeah, a lot, a lot. What happened while you didn't breathe ahead of time or, or before or on other times during the day? Yeah. Sometimes you feel depleted. And obviously that plays in with our kids as well. Oh, definitely. I, I know that, so 
I get this sometimes. We will tell a kid like, hey, hey, just breathe for a second. I don't need to breathe. I just need to get... So are there any tricks that we can use with that? Or, yes, or... modeling. Again, modeling. I think when, when we are trying to regulate our child, as we have been saying, we need to be compassionate and to try to understand, well, are we modeling our understanding? Yeah. If our child is not okay and then you are trying to tell, you are okay. Of course, the kid is not okay. Yeah, yeah. So what about if we said, oh, you are having a hard time? Right there, breathe. <sighs> you are showing your child, you are modeling your child a way to start regulation. That will go to the child way, way easier. The child will understand that way easier if you will, that, rather than you tell him, I need you to stop and breathe. Calm down. What happens to yourself when you are upset and somebody tells you, calm down? <laughs> <laughs> that's a fear. As, I don't think in the history of the world that's ever worked one time. I, I don't think. <laughs> it doesn't work for me. <laughs> As my spouse. <laughs> so, so modeling those things, modeling breathing, just be there with the child. Kind of like try to simulate what the child is experiencing. Yeah. It's a very important point of connection to start co-regulation. Gosh. Again, I could talk about this all day long. Becca, what, what else do you want us to cover from this particular topic today before we go today? Oh, I'm just so thankful for these three voices. I think I'm just hearing, you know, Stella's talking about you have to attune to your child. And I love that you can't separate our core components out. You can't meet emotional needs without thinking, do we need to go for a walk? <laughs> you can't yeah. meet sensory processing needs without going, man, that splinter really does hurt you. I, I hear you and yeah. you can't meet the physical needs um, or you can meet the physical needs. And sometimes you just think that's enough. I've given you what you need. Why are you not okay? Yeah. But when we can see how they all kind of intertwine together and they're all kind of tangled up in each other, we can start to kind of follow those threads and provide, I think Lou said early on, we just provide the resources. So I think whenever we just see our role as offering support instead of making them stop, fill in the blank, making them stop kicking, making them stop screaming, making them go to the car quicker. When we can pause and just go, okay, I'm attuning, I'm tuning in. What do they need? Yeah. How can I offer it? And then you just have to use your relationship with that kid to tell you what to do. Because some kids, you're going to like make a silly joke and they're going to like laugh and you're going to be connected and you're going to be able to move through. Other kids, you're going to go, okay, if I say anything directive, it's going to set them off. So I'm just going to go do something else. And as they move their body with me, that's going to regulate them. Or someone else is going to be, they really need me to like look at their eyes and go, I see you and I see how hard this is. So I think it's like, we've talked about this over and over again, but we can't give you like a prescription of like, do these three things. Right. But we can just open our mindset to, and when we're tuning into the needs of our kid and ourself, and for some of us, that's really hard. That's the only thing that I think Stella said it, but I'm going to say it again. You can't meet your child's needs if you're not aware of your own. Yeah. So if you have trouble with your emotions, with your sensory processing, with meeting, if you're somebody who works through lunch every single day, that's something you need to attend to. That's something you need to think yeah. about. So I just am thankful for you three for the work that you do um, in your homes as you know, as parents yourselves, and then also with clients and therapy. And I just think, man, if you're out here listening and you're like, I don't know how to do this, I hope that you can find support in your area from professionals because I think professional support can go such a long way when it comes to these complicated kind of needs that we're trying to meet. Yeah, yeah, and. I think it's going to be so important for us to keep in mind as parents that we are trying. Mm. We yeah. need to give ourselves grace yeah. for what we are doing. Yeah. Okay. And like I have mentioned in other um, talks that I give with parents, what, what, like when we are flying, right? What do they say as a safety measure? Take care of your own oxygen before you take care of the oxygen else's. for yep. somebody else's. Yep, yep. So keeping yourself in check from a very kind, forgiving to yourself perspective. Yeah. Because you are doing what you can. 
And I just, it, to tie that back in with what we were talking about earlier, if we are going to think about the end goal of parenting, it's just to help prepare your kids to, to thrive the best they can as adults in the world. And one of the most helpful tools they can have is the visual of an imperfect person who does the best they can to take care of themselves. They apologize when they do something wrong. They, they repair when things rupture and they keep going back and keep taking care of themselves and keep taking care of each other. And so if we can model these things well, um, now we, we are not going to take care of ourselves and neglect our kids by doing that. Like, you know, dad needs, dad needs a day of watching football. Don't talk to me, you know, and I do sometimes, but if, <laughs> but uh, it does mean that we, we have to model for them and, and they're not going to, I mean, I got yelled at the other day by a child, like, no, I need you to play with me right now. And I was like, I, from behind the closed door, I need a minute and I will come see you in just a second. And, you know, it, it, it made it easier then later to say, Hey, when you need a minute, minute earlier, like I, I needed a second, I was losing it. And so it's okay if we need a minute to just go get by ourselves and, you know, punch a punching bag or go run outside and jump on trampoline or, or go sit in a quiet place and just breathe for a second. Like, that's okay. Me, me and mom do that too, you know? And so I think when we can model those things, the kids aren't going to understand them in the moment all the time or rarely, if ever. But as they get older, there's going to be these implicit things, they cues they take from us to regulate because they've seen it before. So, um, guys, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. And I, I do feel like after doing this, we're going to have to do at least a few more episodes with uh, these different dynamics in play because it's so helpful to hear all of you three talking together about how your work integrates. And, um, and just to remember that all of our stuff is connected, you know. And so thank you so much, guys, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, really helpful stuff today from Stella, from Annie, um, from Luz and Becca. And just a, a big thank you to all of them for coming on. Um, on a personal note, I will say that uh, each of these people have um, in their own respective work um, deeply impacted uh, not just our family, but just the, the community in which we've seen. So what I could say, what I would love to say um, as a follow-up to all of this today, it's just that um, when you listen to this, just know you can trust the, the words and the work that is being done um, by these professionals in um, the center here in Memphis. Um, they're, they're just doing incredible work. So what they said today totally holds up and we see it put into practice every day. I'm just really grateful for them. That's all for us for today. We're going to continue talking about these different connecting practices, and, and hopefully this has been really helpful for you as well. Um, we'll also have some news coming up on uh, different opportunities that we will have to uh, become an ETC Cultivate Connection facilitator. So stay tuned for all of that. We'll have all that and more coming up next time on the Empowered to Connect podcast. For Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio, for Tad Jewett, the creator of the music behind the Empowered to Connect podcast, I'm J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the ETC podcast. Mm-hmm.